1974, the Buffalo Sabres drafted a center. The five foot nine youngster just wrapped up an impressive season with his junior team, and Buffalo was happy to have him. The buzz around the league grew as word of the player spread. There's just one small problem. He never actually appeared in an NHL game. The player they picked in the 11th round, 183rd overall, he didn't exist. While the story could begin and end with the telling of that noteworthy draft pick, the circumstances surrounding his selection explain more than any page on HockeyDB could. It's the story of league expansion, of rival leagues and secret drafts, of labor rights, of creative public relations. But most importantly, it's the story of a hoax and how so many people could fall for it. This is the story of Taro Sujimoto. In 1970, professional hockey was taken off in North America. The NHL had just expanded from six teams to 12 in 1967, and there were still markets clamoring for a team. During that 1967 expansion, one city in particular was passed up. An ownership group led by Seymour H. Knox III and Northrop Knox put Buffalo on the NHL's radar as a potential landing spot for an expansion franchise. The Knox family at this point is synonymous with Buffalo. After Seymour H. Knox I co-founded the Woolworth Variety Stores, a local chain of five and dimes that expanded their reach as the brand increased in value. These stores closed in the mid-90s and most of the locations were turned into Foot Lockers, another portion of the Woolworth company. While the Knox family had influence in western New York, they didn't have the same kind of pull throughout the country. Their 1967 bid to land an expansion franchise failed thanks in no small part to Art Rooney, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers of the National Football League. Rooney used his influence to convince members of the Board of Governors to vote against Buffalo and for Pittsburgh for expansion. And it worked. The Penguins were one of six teams added to the NHL in 1967, along with the Flyers in Philadelphia, the Blues in St. Louis, the North Stars in Minnesota, the Golden Seals in California, and the Los Angeles Kings. Considering the NHL had six teams to this point and just added six more, this was a huge blow to the Knox family's attempt to own a team in Buffalo. They would try again in the next few years, but the NHL turned them down once more, claiming that they would like to let the current expansion teams grow without adding any more teams into the league. It would also be within reason to expect that the Toronto Maple Leafs had some level of input on the decision, considering the Buffalo team would play in the Leafs' backyard. At any rate, the plan was dead for now. That is, until Canada got mad. Canadian fans and television markets were upset at the lack of Canadian representation in the NHL. While the NHL added six teams to the league, not a single one was in a Canadian city. But in 1970, the NHL fixed that by adding a team in notable Canadian cities, Vancouver, and Buffalo. Well, it turns out Buffalo's biggest selling point at the time was that it was close to Canada. There are probably some Leafs fans who still believe that to be the case. But none of that mattered to the folks in Buffalo. The city had a team, the Sabres. Then they got their coach and general manager, George Punch Imlach. Imlach won the 1967 Stanley Cup as coach of the Leafs, 
and was unceremoniously fired a year later. He later revealed that he only took the Buffalo job to, quote, piss off the Leafs. Imlac was as smart a hockey man as there was in the 60s and 70s, with a bit of an intolerance for nonsense. That's probably not out of the ordinary for the time, or for a guy whose nickname is Punch. Now they needed players. And it's only fitting that the team that made the most outrageous draft selection of all time had its first draft experience play out, well, like this. At the draft, league president and hockey supervillain Clarence Campbell had a wheel with the numbers 1 through 20 spread out around it. He asked for the teams to pick ranges of 10. Imlac picked the latter half for the Sabres, 11 through 20, as 11 was supposedly his favorite number. Vancouver was then assigned numbers 1 through 10. The concept was simple. The wheel would be spun, and if it landed on your number, you got the first overall pick. The consensus number one prospect that year? A guy named Gilbert Perrault, who just put up 51 goals and 121 points in 54 games for the Montreal Junior Canadiens. And while he played for a team in Montreal in junior, he wouldn't play for the Montreal Canadiens in the NHL, as this was the first year where the Habs did not hold exclusivity over Quebec-born players. Alright, back to the wheel. When it stopped spinning, Campbell saw the number one under the arrow on the wheel, which meant Vancouver had won the draft lottery. While Campbell congratulated the Canucks on their coin flip victory, Punch Amlak asked for a further look. Asking for a recount on a coin flip is a bold strategy to say the least, but it worked. Upon further review, the wheel stopped on 11, not 1, and Campbell only saw one of the numbers. How can you make that mistake? Was it really a mistake? Campbell had undoubtedly been part of the decisions to keep the NHL out of Buffalo all this time. Was something else here? Maybe there was, and there would be friction between Imlac and Campbell throughout the former's time in Buffalo. At the time, Imlac couldn't have cared. He went ahead and selected Perot, who became the face of the Sabres throughout his entire NHL career. He made up a third of the French connection line, which formed a year into his career. Rick Martin arrived for his rookie season, and Rene Robert was acquired in a trade from Pittsburgh. The line went on to terrify the league, playing a fast, skilled style that rivaled any line in the league. Perot ultimately became the all-time leading point scorer in Sabres history, a record he holds to this day by over 500 points. But one superstar does not a team make, and that was evident in the first two seasons in Buffalo. Year one saw the Sabres go 24th and 39 with 15 ties, only to double down on that mediocrity and go 16 and 43 with 19 ties the following year, even with the French connection line. But that didn't matter to Sabres fans. Memorial Auditorium, known affectionately as The Odd, was filled or close to filled most nights as the fans took to their new team. And the team rewarded their fans' loyalty in 1973, qualifying for the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. But the Sabres weren't the only show in town. The Buffalo Braves joined the NBA in 1970, but left town just eight years later for San Diego. It's not like the Braves were any better or worse than the Sabres. The Braves missed the playoffs their first two years before qualifying for the postseason in their third year, just like the Sabres. There must have been something else here. It was not sports fandom for the sake of it. 
This was a love affair for hockey and the Sabres. Buffalo wasn't a sports town, it was a hockey town. The NHL waited three years to put professional hockey back in Buffalo, and their entry in 1970 did not come a moment too soon. For nearly its entire existence to this point, the NHL had been the only show in town. But that changed in 1971 with the founding of the World Hockey Association. In charge of the show were Dennis Murphy and Gary Davidson, who were comfortable creating rival leagues. Just four years earlier, they were part of the group that created the American Basketball Association that rivaled the NBA for a decade. So what was this league going to do differently? What was going to be this league's edge? For some reason, history remembers this league as a trailblazer into new markets, but that isn't completely true. Five of the original 12 WHA teams were in previously established NHL markets. The new markets included Ottawa, New England, Cleveland, Quebec, Winnipeg, Houston, and Alberta. Most of these are familiar as NHL markets today, so there is some truth to the idea that the WHA wanted to land in their own markets. It just wasn't the league's calling card. That's something history gets wrong. Instead, their edge came in the form of a contract clause, or lack thereof. The reserve clause was included in every NHL contract. It stated that the players' rights were to be retained by their original team essentially forever. Even when a player's contract expired, the team still held their rights, and any other team interested in signing the player would need to compensate the player's original team. Free agency didn't exist. If you were a New York Ranger, you were a New York Ranger until they didn't want you anymore. Players could hold out until conditions were met, but these players didn't make enough in previous contracts for holdouts to be feasible. They still needed to feed their families, so they ended up back at the bargaining table sooner rather than later. This is where the WHA would be different. In a WHA contract, there was no reserve clause, meaning WHA players were not bound to their WHA team forever. It also meant players in the NHL started to think about leaving the NHL for the WHA. The NHL's reserve clause didn't keep players from going to other leagues, did it? Of course, the National Hockey League took the World Hockey Association to court over this, and it backfired. A 1972 Philadelphia District Court decided that reserve clauses could not be included in a player contract, and with that, the floodgates to the WHA were opened. That court decision in 1972 directly involved Bobby Hull, one of the faces of the NHL. He signed a 10-year, $2.75 million contract with the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey Association that the courts upheld. Derek Sanderson, a legendary Boston Bruin, signed a multi-year deal with the Philadelphia Blazers, paying him more than Hull received in any given year. A year later, Mr. Hockey followed suit. In 1973, Gordie Howe signed with the New England Whalers. In total, over 60 players left the NHL in 1972, and more left as the years went on. The NHL was nervous. They needed to protect their league, and the only way they thought they could do that was to operate in secrecy. With the reserve clause gone, the NHL needed to protect all assets of their player development. That started with the 1974 NHL draft. From 1963 to 1973, the entry draft was conducted in person in Montreal. The league decided that holding the draft in person moving forward was risky, as there may have been people from the WHA present, or players and agents may leak information to the rival league. 
The solution? To hold the draft over the phone. In 1974, Campbell conducted the draft from the league office in Montreal, while other teams in the league waited in their respective cities. When it was your turn to pick, Campbell dialed your number and called you. You needed to identify yourself as a member of a team, and then Campbell would read the draft picks from earlier in the round, spelling out each name. Players were even asked to sequester themselves in hotels to keep word from getting out. Of course, none of that worked. Players told their agents, and their agents told other teams. Holding the draft over the phone accomplished literally nothing. The draft was suspended after nearly eight hours on day one, with one punch Imlac furious with the process. He didn't see the purpose in spending hours selecting players in the latter rounds of the draft who would never go on to play in the NHL. When Campbell called and listed the players drafted before the current pick, he might as well have been reading the phone book. On the morning of day two of the draft, Campbell decided he had had enough of this annoyance. He wanted to exact his pound of flesh, and the target was, of course, NHL President Clarence Campbell. But how? What could they do? After meeting with his staff, their public relations director, Paul Wieland, had an idea. Why don't we pick a player who doesn't exist? Before he was part of the Sabres front office, Paul Whelan was just a kid in Buffalo who was learning how to create news. His first experience in news was in the sixth grade when he tried to make a newspaper. It lasted one edition, as his typewriter destroyed his carbon copies. While being a one-man press might have been hard for a sixth grader, he liked the news gathering process and he decided to stick with that throughout his education. While enrolled at St. Bonaventure College in the 1950s, he began his illustrious career as a hoaxer. These hoaxes were more pranks and trolling attempts, but hoaxes nonetheless. Whelan once tried to frame a rival college, University of Niagara, for vandalizing his school's lawn and pool. In the process, he dyed his school's pool purple, the color of rival U of N, and he was never found out. He got away with it. Moving on from more permanent damage to temporary dislodgement, Whelan would use his car to push the school's information booth. The booth sat on gravel and was easy to push. It was not so easy to put back, as work crews were needed to lift the booth back into its original spot. Whelan and his buddies did this again and again, never getting caught. After graduating, Whelan attended Canisius for his graduate program while working nights at the Buffalo Evening News. It was here that his print hoaxes took off. First, he made up a story about a gardening club that would jump the border to go to a garden in southern Ontario. No one inquired about the piece, so he tried again with something a bit more prominent. Whelan then claimed Cassius Clay, before he was known as Muhammad Ali, was being awarded a Sportsman of the Year award by a local Lions club. When pressed on the issue by an editor, Whelan was quick on his feet, saying Clay was busy and would not be coming to Buffalo to claim the award. Early on in his career, Whelan learned where the line was between lying and hoaxing. While reporting on a robbery at Seymour H. Knox's house, yes, that Seymour H. Knox, an editor fabricated a quote from Knox in Whelan's story. Whelan's name was attached to a lie, an easily disprovable lie. Putting words in the mouth of a victim of a crime was foul play for Whelan, and he quickly fell out of love with reporting. After leaving the world of news writing, he landed in public relations. After spending some time at General Motors in Detroit, the Knox family came calling. 
They wanted Whelan to join the Expansion Sabres as their PR director. At first, Whelan was disinterested in uprooting his wife and two daughters again, but he ultimately agreed and came home to Buffalo. Upon joining the Sabres, Whelan and Imlach became close. Imlach even made Whelan the Sabres practice goalie, claiming that it was a, quote, morale builder for the fledgling Sabres. Off the ice, Whelan helped get the Sabres on cable television, something that it was a bit of a risk at the time. No one knew if cable TV was the future or a fad, but Whelan and the Sabres saw it as a way to get Sabres games to fans who could not afford season tickets. It was on that cable TV broadcast that legendary Sabres announcer Rick Jenneret got his start. And it was also here that Whelan started trying out some other hoaxes. He had fooled people in writing, but could he do it on TV? A miniature Goodyear blimp made its way into the hands of Whelan, and he took full advantage of it, making the blimp look life-size as it flew through the air of the old odd in Buffalo. Jenneret even played along with the gag on air. Then the gag got more elaborate, with the faces of people from the broadcast team superimposed into the cabin of the blimp. Of course, there was no way the Goodyear blimp was flying inside the odd, but that didn't stop people from believing it. Calls came into the Sabres asking about the blimp, Some legitimately thought the blimp was in the odd. Some were angry that they were being fooled. Whelan took it all in stride. It was, after all, free publicity, and he was having the time of his life. The Knox brothers were on board with Whelan's hoaxes, giving him nearly free reign to make all the silly jokes he wanted. This support gave Whelan the freedom to keep pushing the boundaries of his hoaxes, blurring the lines between the boring reality of hockey operations and the silly reality he wanted Buffalo to exist in. In 1974, the silliest one of all had the greatest staying power. While most of Whelan's gags took some level of preparation, his greatest of all was an off-the-cuff joke that came together in the matter of minutes. When Whelan suggested that the Sabres draft a player that didn't exist, the wheels started turning. Okay, who's the player? Whelan suggested he should be from Japan. No one had ever been drafted in the NHL from Japan at this point. It was an odd place to scout, but it worked for what they were trying to do. Okay, so what about a name? Whelan had the name Sujimoto in his head. On Route 16 in western New York, there was a shop that Whelan drove past every weekend between his home in Buffalo and St. Bonaventure College. Sujimoto Garden and Gifts. It was perfect. John Anderson, the Sabres director of scouting, added the first name Taro as he knew it was a common Japanese name. It sounded good, but who could confirm that? Well, Mr. Sujimoto, of course. The Sabres draft delegation called Sujimoto's shop on Route 16 and received confirmation from Mr. Sujimoto himself that Taro was a common name for a boy in Japan. He also added Katana was a good name for a make-believe team. A Katana is similar enough to a Sabre that it should signal to the discerning eye that the whole thing was a gag. So it was settled. The Sabres were going to draft Taro Sujimoto, a center from the Tokyo Katana. When Campbell called for the Sabres' 11th round draft pick, Amalek gave him Taro. The name was spelled out on the phone. No one laughed, no one scoffed. Campbell took the name and moved on to the next pick. For the time being, Taro was a Sabre. The draft pick was official, 
and Campbell repeated his process for the remainder of the round. Each team got to hear Taro's name and probably heard it spelled out too. It was a good, necessary laugh that Whelan and the Sabres expected to die at the draft. Only it didn't. In St. Catharines, Ontario the following fall, the Sabres held their annual training camp. The training camp program for media and fans to follow had Taro listed as a prospect, and thanks to some buy-in from team equipment manager Rip Simonick, Taro's legend continued. In the Sabres locker room, a stall was prepared with the name Sujimoto and the number 13. Whelan remembers Simonick telling other players trying to make the roster that Taro had been training in the Himalayas and was a phenom in the making. Internal competition at training camp is always a good thing, and that's what Taro probably provided for the Sabres. Some Sabres hopefuls were probably a little concerned that their jobs were in jeopardy. And maybe their jobs were in jeopardy. It just wasn't going to be Taro taking their spots. Starting in the 1974 season, Sabres fans hung Taro Says banners from the upper deck at the Odd in Buffalo, most of them poking fun at the team. That season, the official NHL guide included Taro as a draft choice for the Buffalo Sabres. According to Wheeland, it would be years before they changed Taro to a, quote, invalid selection. What started off as a way to take a jab at President Campbell turned into a legendary prank. Of course, for Wheeland, this only made him bolder. Wheeland went on to create hoaxes that pushed the boundaries of belief. His first hoax after Tarot was to tell fans that the Sabres were going to use fake ice provided by a company called Sliderex. A press release from Wheeland was picked up by the local news that night, much to the delight of Wheeland. It even fooled Campbell who was forced to give a statement claiming that the NHL was always looking for new technology. Fake ice was a real thing back then, but it was nowhere near the quality of real ice, something Whelan knew and Campbell, well, didn't. Whelan moved from ice to fake ice to water for his next hoax. Parked in the canal in downtown Buffalo, the decommissioned USS Little Rock was to be named the official Sabres yacht. Imlac even got in on the gag, saying the team would use the ship for training purposes. The league didn't bat an eye at something that had nothing to do with hockey, but that didn't stop New York Times columnist Jerry Eskenazi from giving his take. Eskenazi, who took the hoax to be completely serious, railed against the Sabres, claiming that if the team spent more on hockey instead of boats, they might have a better hockey team. I would imagine Eskenazi was right. No way to prove that, though. closest Icarus ever came to the sun was in 1982. Wheeling created a fake press release, which he had done dozens of times already, though this time it wasn't for the Sabres. It was for the White House. The release came on White House letterhead, only Wheeling made it himself. The release, supposedly from President Ronald Reagan, claimed the Buffalo Sabres were America's team. To push the matter even further, Whelan had a fake Time magazine cover created with Captain Gilbert Perrault on the cover with the proclamation from the president. Most of Whelan's hoaxes were harmless and legal. This one, on the other hand, probably wasn't. Whelan later learned that he violated two federal laws in the process. First, faking White House stationery is illegal. Second, attaching the president's name and signature to a letter they didn't write is illegal. When informed of his crimes, Whelan responded with a cavalier attitude. He didn't think anything would come of it, and he was right. 
Whelan went on hoaxing, but none of them as monumental as the one he created in 1974 at the NHL draft. Speaking of that draft, was Imlach right about the later stages of the draft? That they were all useless? Well, no. After Tara Sujimoto was drafted in the 11th round, the Sabres weren't done drafting. In the 12th round, they selected notable real person, Bob Jeffreon. So the Sabres drafted a player they knew wasn't real before they drafted a player who was. Jeffreon never played in the NHL, so he was about as potent of a draft pick as Tara anyway. But why did they decide to do it this way? You knew Tara was going to be available in the next round. You know, because he doesn't exist and you made him up? Why not end the draft with a handful of picks that didn't exist? Maybe that's just a testament to Imlock's belief about the double-digit rounds of the draft. Bob Jeffreyon was real, but he might as well have been imaginary. Okay, so Jeffreyon didn't pan out. That's no big deal, I guess. Well, maybe not. In the 12th round, after Sujimoto and Jeffreon were selected, Montreal selected forward Dave Lumley. Lumley appeared in 437 games over nine seasons, winning two Stanley Cups with the Edmonton Oilers. And in the 14th round, 214th overall, the New York Islanders selected defenseman Stefan Person. Also joining a dynasty in New York, Person played in nine seasons of his own, scoring 369 points in 622 games. His name went on the Stanley Cup four times. Would Lumley or Person have had the same level of success with the Buffalo Sabres? It's impossible to say, but there was still NHL-caliber talent available after Buffalo finished drafting. But maybe Imlac did get his say after all. Back then, the draft just kept going until teams didn't want to pick anymore. In 1982, the draft was capped at 12 rounds. And then at 11 rounds in 1992. Then at 9 rounds in 1995 until we finally got to seven rounds in 2005 where we stand today. And with no rival league to poach players, the draft became a bit easier to manage in 1979. That's when the WHA folded and four teams were absorbed by the NHL. The New England Whalers became the Hartford Whalers before moving to Carolina to become the Hurricanes in the late 90s. The Quebec Nordique also moved cities in the mid-90s, becoming the Colorado Avalanche and quickly winning two Stanley Cups. The Winnipeg Jets lasted about as long as the Nordique, moving to Phoenix to become the Coyotes. The Jets live on in some capacity, though, as the Atlanta Thrashers moved to Winnipeg to become the new Jets. The only WHA team still operating as it was in 1979 is the Edmonton Oilers, who became one of the greatest dynasties in NHL history in the 1980s, behind Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, and Dave Lumley. While the WHA's visual presence has all but disappeared, they still left a mark on the game. Their insistence in the removal of the reserve clause was a labor issue that helped players tremendously. On the other hand, it probably helped the NHL keep players from leaving for the WHA. The NHL was the better league. It would make sense that players would want to stay within that league, if not for the same team, for the duration of their careers. They could also make more money in the NHL, as the WHA quickly burned through cash. The removal of the reserve clause did not create free agency, though. A player had more rights to determine where they wanted to go, but they were still restricted by the team that held their rights. 
free agency in its truest definition didn't come along until 1995, and that took a lockout to achieve. And what about tarot? Did people forget about the footnote of the 1974 draft? Certainly some have, but those interested in the history of the game want to keep his story alive. At the time of the draft, Taro would have been the first Japanese player drafted into the NHL. Nearly 20 years later, someone broke that record. Someone real. In 1992, Hiroki Miura was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. Like Sujimoto, Miura was taken in the 11th round. Also like Sujimoto, Miura never played in the NHL. Yutaka Fukifuji, a Japanese goaltender, was drafted by the LA Kings in the 8th round of the 2004 entry draft. In 2006, Fukufuji became the first Japanese player to dress for a game, but he didn't play. On January 13, 2007, he became the first Japanese player to play in the NHL, entering a game in relief. Four days later, he would become the first Japanese player to start in an NHL game. Since then, no other Japanese-born players have played in the NHL, but there are some promising players like 16-year-old Aido Aguchi on the way that might have a shot. While Sujimoto may have been a far-fetched idea in the 70s, it's not out of the question for a Japanese player to make the jump to professional hockey today. Speaking of tarot, in 2011, the hockey card company Panini made a card for Sujimoto. On the front, an unidentifiable man wearing Sabres colors took the place of our make-believe hero. On the back, the following passage summed up tarot's story while adding a little bit more to the tale. Panini wrote, In Buffalo, it's not Where Have You Gone, Joe DiMaggio, it's Where Have You Been, Taro Sujimoto, the first Japanese player ever selected in the NHL draft. The Sabres tabbed their mysterious prospect in the 11th round back in 1974. The Canadians, who had hoped to steal him later in the draft, were rumored to have worked out a deal for the diminutive center that would have sent Jacques Lemaire to Buffalo. Instead, the Sabres held on to his rights and continued to anticipate his arrival. To this day, whispers of his exploits with the Tokyo Katana stir up fans at HSBC Arena where the faithful are often heard to chant, We want tarot. Panini made up that whole trade rumor involving Jacques Lemaire in Montreal, but the rest of it is a faithful adaptation of that story. You have to imagine a child opened a pack of cards back in 2011 and thought tarot was real. At least I hope that happened. Sabres fans sure haven't forgotten about Sujimoto. At Sabres games, you can pick out the occasional Sujimoto jersey, most of which carry the number 74 to signify his draft year. You might even find a real diehard with the number 13 jersey, which was the number he was supposed to wear during training camp in 1974. Sabres fans hold on to this memory as a reminder of where they came from. The early years of the Sabres were when the city formed a love affair with the team. Through all their shortcomings on the ice, characters like Whelan made the team more relevant and kept the energy around the team fun. Taro exemplifies this fun, and for that reason, will never really be forgotten. Because of that, He's as real as any of the other 246 players drafted in 1974, and just about as real as most of the players who have ever played in Buffalo. Thanks for listening. The main source for this podcast was a memoir written by Paul Whelan himself titled Tara Lives, Confessions of the Sabres Hoaxer. You can find it on Rock, Paper, Safety, Scissors Publishing's website, rpsspublishing.com. Also used as a source for this podcast was Stan and Shirley Fischler's 
great book of hockey.